independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $1 per month and access extended content, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. We can individually and collectively act in our own community in our neighborhoods to do something different than we're doing now, whether it's like community composting or a community solar array or individually investing in solar, but that we also have to collectively organize to change the rules of the system to make it easier for that kind of thing to happen. That was John Farrell, also known as the guru of distributed energy. He's the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, where he directs its work on energy democracy, and he's best known for his vivid illustrations of the economic and environmental benefits of local ownership of decentralized renewable energy. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how we came to develop and rely on our current centralized, top-down power grids today, mostly driven by utility monopolies, why we need to not only shift towards renewable energy, but also work towards energy democracy and the decentralization of power sources, why some utility companies may at the same time be supporting solar energy while lobbying against it, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I think part of it is, frankly, I just grew up in a liberal Catholic church, and social justice was a big focus of my religious upbringing. And so there was always this kind of understanding of like a stewardship over nature and an importance of respecting that. And I think just more concretely, my parents were always after me to turn off lights and close doors and close windows when the air conditioning was on and that kind of thing. And so the two things sort of merged together in a way as I went through my education and then in terms of finding a job that eventually landed me at, at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Can you first share a little bit about what the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is all about and how it goes about supporting its mission? You know, we're, we've been around for about 45 years, a nonprofit organization, and we've really relentlessly been focused on how communities can have more power and authority over their the decision-making process that impacts them around their economy. And so we talk about building local power, and we mean that around Kind of building the power of cities and towns and citizens. And we especially talk about that in the context of fighting the increasing corporate concentration in the economy. Mm. So making sure that there can still be local and independent businesses rather than just a few large online retailers, or in the case of my energy work, 
looking at how people can directly own their own energy generation, either individually, like on their own rooftop, a solar panel array, or collectively with, uh, you know, a community solar garden that might be on their church. That feels very timely because I feel like oftentimes we feel very powerless in the face of hearing about all these huge corporations that seem to have all the power. So that definitely feels like something that can be really empowering for us to learn what we can do at a local and community-based level to reclaim our agency and control over the lives and the world that we want to realize for ourselves. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that has been so important to me is finding that balance. There are a lot of people who I feel like work in the environmental space that talk a lot about personal responsibility. So, you know, you should give up eating meat because it has a large impact on the climate, or you should, you know, lower your own energy use before you talk to anybody else about doing it themselves. And I, I think it has its limitations because mm-hmm. the the impact of one individual person's decision is really quite small. You know, it's, it's, you know, there aren't that many elections, for example, decided by just one vote, but it's when we all act together, all doing those things individually, but also have a power of collective action. You know, for example, if our city can be the one, the place where we make decisions about where our energy comes from instead of some large multinational electric company, uh, it really changes the way that we can impact the world, uh, mm-hmm. both for ourselves and for others. So increasingly, it sounds like we have to go beyond the boundaries of our own personal lifestyles to come together with our communities to make these larger decisions that can have, it's still kind of grassroots, but it can have more, more of a systemic effect on, on our society. Absolutely. In terms of energy, in an article published on Vox, it was late 2018 that you had reshared. The subtitle reads, the centralized top-down power grid is outdated. Time for a bottom-up redesign, end quote. So in a nutshell, this seems to pretty concisely portray where we're currently at with the U.S. power grid being the largest machine in the world by some estimates that is in need of evolution and restructuring as we work towards sustainable development in energy. I would love for us to first get a bit of context behind our power system today. So how do we come to establish this monstrous system that is our centralized power grid today? And what exactly does that look like in practice? What it looks like in practice is this amazing outcome where we have this incredibly reliable and relatively low-cost way to power all sorts of things in our lives, from lights to electronics to uh, appliances. It's on almost all the time, and we don't really have to think about it all that much. It's really a remarkable. Uh, some folks have described it as the the top engineering achievement of the 20th century, and I, I don't think I would disagree with that. But what's really interesting is the way that we got there, that we started out with generating electricity really at a neighborhood level, that the first power plants only served a few homes. And it was in the early 20th century that the folks that were developing that industry uh, some of them tied to Thomas Edison, who would you know come up with the light bulb, <clears throat> some with Nikola Tesla and and some others, that they first realized that there was this opportunity to broadly expand how we used electricity. That didn't just have to be about going from gas lighting to electric lighting, but that there were many things that we could power with electricity, and that there were huge economies of scale to building bigger. So we had two two kind of parallel things going on. One was let's wire up everybody because everybody can take advantage of electricity. Uh, that we can affordably do so. And the other one was w- the bigger scale we build it, the cheaper energy will be. And that what that led to is a couple things. So one was in the electricity business itself, people were like, bigger is better. Let's keep building larger structures. Mm-hmm. 
And then the second piece that kept happening that was important to the time was an agreement between sort of the titans of the electric industry and government that this should be a monopoly industry, that it was not a good idea to have competition building like 17 electric grids, that we really only need one. Each house only needs one wire to connect it. And so we should segment off the grid into these monopoly service territories where there's just one company, where there's no competition. And inherently, it's a very un-American thing to talk about having no competition and have monopolies, especially when they're privately owned. Mm. But it seemed like the best idea at the time. And certainly for the first half of the 20th century, it worked out really well for everybody. These companies made money. They produced more electricity. They did it less expensively every decade. And really, the only thing that was harmed in it was the environment, of course, because we didn't factor in the cost of the pollution from coal or oil or all the other kinds of things that we were burning in order to generate electricity. And what's fascinating now, is, and this has been happening now for at least a couple couple decades, is that we're becoming more efficient energy users, and so we're using less and less per person, which is very exciting, but also that we are, are able to generate electricity at a much smaller scale affordably. Like a, doing it on my own rooftop can be affordable compared to the price of buying electricity from my utility company. And, and so the, the, we're sort of like almost returning to the beginning, where at the neighborhood level, we can make energy decisions again in a way that we could 100 years ago. And, and yet, ironically, we still have all of the power structure, all of the structure of the market is still built around this monopoly model where we have these giant corporations that make the decisions on a you know, regional or statewide scale when the decision-making power and the technology really lends itself to the neighborhood level. Mm. So, I mean, if these monopoly utility companies have allowed us to basically not really need to think about our energy sources for such a long time, why is there a need for us to start thinking about this now? Climate change is one of the most pressing problems that requires our attention. And the truth of it is that the electricity system has long been one of the largest contributors to climate change, but also to many other forms of pollution, acid rain from coal plants, emissions, mercury emissions. Uh, there are so many different ways in which the things that we've burned to generate electricity have caused significant health and environmental problems for Americans that have been very costly to, to deal with. Mm. And so, you know, we're, we're having a reckoning with that. And we are seeing, fortunately, a, a significant shift to renewable energy in part because energy from solar and, and from wind power is now less expensive than most of the polluting sources that we had been getting our power from in the past. But the second thing that's really exciting is that we have this opportunity. We, we collectively spend, as Americans, industry, homeowners, businesses, about $360 billion a year buying electricity. Wow. And we have this opportunity to fundamentally change who we send that money to, that we don't have to give it all to these big corporations, these big businesses that generate electricity for a profit, but we have a way to reduce how much we use ourselves because there's lots of tools like LED light bulbs and energy efficiency things. We have solar panels that we can put on our roof or that we can invest in collectively in a community solar array. So we can keep more of that money in our own pockets, in our community's pockets in a way that we haven't been able to do for a generation or two. So basically because we may not have direct control over where these monopoly utility companies choose to source their energy from, we can take back that power ourselves by investing in more local sources that we believe in and take back our agency in terms of where we would like to get our energy sources from. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, when you talk about what, when we talk about what we do at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, what we talk about is that that is a twofold path. One is we can individually and collectively act in our own community 
in our neighborhoods to do something different than we're doing now, whether it's like community composting or a community solar array or individually investing in solar, but that we also have to collectively organize to change the rules of the system to make it easier for that kind of thing to happen. Because otherwise, these big utilities are not just big companies in the electricity business, they're also very powerful political entities. They, you know, in Ohio, for example, they just passed a bill in the last few weeks that will subsidize these large aging power plants of that incumbent utility. Uh, and it's largely because that utility gave hundreds of thousands of dollars in contributions, political contributions to the state's legislature. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a lesson here that we we can do a lot by ourselves. There's a huge opportunity what we can do in our own communities, but we can't ignore the bigger picture, the political sphere, because the two are, are tied together. Mm-hmm. If those companies are free to act the way they want, it will suck more money out of our communities that we could have invested in, in the solutions uh, that are best for us. And in showing the feasibility of decentralization, you authored Energy Self-Reliant States, which is a state-by-state atlas of renewable energy potential, showing that most states don't need to look outside of their borders to meet their electricity needs. Just so we can conceptualize this, do we know what percentage of the energy we're currently using as everyday citizens currently come from outside of our states? And in food, there's this term called food miles. Like, do we know what our energy miles are? You know, sadly, we don't. And and that's partly because tracking the electricity is complicated. What we do know is from like an engineering standpoint that the electrons that come to my home that are flowing into the computer that I'm using to have this conversation are coming from the nearest possible source. So if that's solar panels on my roof, that's where that electricity is coming from because it's the closest source. It follows the path of least resistance. So chances are almost all the electricity you're actually using is coming from within your state borders unless you happen to live like right on the border of your state and your power is coming from outside those boundaries. That being said, the fuel that we put into the system to generate that electricity, the gas or the coal or the uranium for the nuclear power plant or the wood chips for a mm-hmm. biomass burner, those are the things that tend to come from other places. So we do, we do have some importation of electricity over transmission lines. It's probably like 10% or less of a given state's energy. But the bigger issue is like, take a state like Minnesota, we have none of those natural resources like coal or natural gas or uranium in our state. So all of the power that's generated from those sources is is really imported because we have to import the fuel in order to generate that power. And that's the kind of analysis that we really haven't seen done. And that that's the power of the analysis that we did with energy self-reliant states, which by the way, we're actually in the process of updating, was that renewables, you know, we were focusing on renewable energy and, and renewable energy can gen- be generated pretty much anywhere, which means that states can localize their energy sources, can cut down on importing energy because they likely have abundant wind and solar resources to generate that electricity from within their own borders. Mm. And how about the materials needed to build the wind and solar energy like power plants? Are those materials typically able to be found within the boundaries of the states as well? Or I don't really have a good answer to that question. I, you know, there are a lot of different places that you know produce the steel that you would see in wind turbines or the fiberglass or carbon fiber for the blades. I would guess that that's part of kind of a global materials market. Some of it might come from the United States. Some of it might even come from your state. But chances are a lot of those materials are not local uh, mm-hmm. because we have seen a shift to a kind of a global manufacturing sector in which 
the manufacturing sector chases the cheapest labor dollar. And so my guess is, my intuition, even though I don't know for sure, is that probably not a lot of those materials are generated locally. Mm. On a similar note, a concern that I've been hearing about as an added nuance to think about is that uh, solar panels have a certain lifespan, meaning that they will reach their end of life and no longer be functional. So at the present moment, and maybe you you know a lot better about this, but we don't really know if these used materials can be recycled or otherwise what will happen to them, which puts into question whether that is truly circular. So based on your knowledge, I mean, does the technology used to build uh, solar and other renewable power sources have the same concern? And what do you think is our best way to move forward where we won't end up having unintended consequences of piling e-waste that we haven't properly prepared ourselves for in advance? So I think this is a really important question, but I want to put it in a little bit of context that someone from the Autobahn Society once did for me. And so I was working with them on some renewable energy issues about a decade ago. And I remember that folks were raising this issue that wind turbines do create problems for like migratory birds and for birds in general, because in part they're large and they're in the air and they're spinning around. And so birds can be hit by the turbine blades when they're spinning. But also in some cases, they just represent really large structures that, you know, certain prey animals would see as a threat because they're worried that predator birds would be perched up there. And so they don't want to be anywhere near them. So it's, it's encroaching on habitat. And I remember the Audubon person saying essentially, there are all of these concerns with wind turbines, but the threat of climate change is the most persistent and significant threat to bird life anywhere. And so it's more important for us to focus on how do we get carbon emission reductions out of our electricity sector, even if that means building wind turbines that might have an impact on bird wildlife and, and, and habitat. Mm. And so I think the same thing is true with solar. Is it a circular thing? Probably not at this point. We, we really haven't reached the end of life of most of our solar panels to know uh, to the degree to which it would be easy or difficult to recycle them. I'll say this about solar panels. One of the cool things is even though their warranty might be 20 or 25 years, they do degrade over time, right? So the production from a solar panel every year decreases slightly from its maximum amount, kind of like the battery in my computer never recharges quite as much <laughs> as it did that very first time. But they, they never completely die necessarily unless something breaks. So, and, and because there are solid state electronics, there's no moving parts, they don't often break. So it, it might become more economical for someone to say 20 years from now, I should replace the solar on my roof because the new stuff is way more efficient and better but the old, the old panel should still have value. So I think we have a good opportunity here where we do need to figure out what we're going to do about e-waste. It's a much bigger problem, obviously, than just solar panels. Right. And it, and, but it is, a, it is an important concern. But I think in the context of, kind of, of the global threat that we face around climate change and the pollution impacts of fossil fuel sources, the supply chain issues with solar are at least smaller than the ones that we've had to deal with. And I think that's, that represents progress, but it's certainly not an answer yet. And, and, and I think we still have a way to go. Right. So it sounds like any of our possible solutions going forward may have unintended consequences, but we have to put into perspective what our most urgent concerns are and start there. Absolutely. And, you know, to do our best when we're doing research uh, and development around clean energy technologies that we are to trying to take in consideration those life cycle impacts mm. at, at the point when we're developing the technology and not just 10 years into the market development when there are already millions of them out there to deal with. And adding to, I guess, 
perhaps one of our challenges of transitioning towards renewable energy, you wrote an article about how even utilities that promote rooftop solar lobby against it. And this seems to be pretty convoluted as if there were a hidden agenda behind it and also perhaps alludes to this tension between monopoly utility businesses and customer-owned clean energy. Can you walk us through exactly what is happening with these utilities companies appearing as if they want to support renewable energy while lobbying against it? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because it's not really a hidden agenda, but it's one that I think most people aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. So we think of a utility company as sort of this neutral supplier of energy. So, you know, I'm in, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We're served by Excel Energy. It's a utility company. It's got a monopoly. It serves about half the state. And, and they're and even in state law, they're called a public utility. And they're the only one that can provide energy to me. And they talk about clean energy stuff all the time. In fact, they are probably one of the most progressive large investor-owned utilities. But the key is investor-owned. So these these utilities have a legal obligation, like any publicly traded company, to maximize value to their shareholders. And doing that for a utility company, based on the way that we've structured the market for them, they're a monopoly, so we set the rules for them, is to build stuff. When they spend a billion dollars building a power plant, their shareholders get about $100 million, about 10% of that, as a return. So their bias for their shareholders is to build and own the structures of the electricity system. And so rooftop solar presents this conundrum for them, which is even if they are environmentally motivated, even if Excel Energy, for example, is out saying we're going to be 100% carbon-free energy by 2050, which is a public commitment they've made, which is really remarkable, they're really not interested in rooftop solar. And, And in fact, they would be inclined to discourage it because from their standpoint, it represents a loss of market share and a loss of potential revenue for their shareholders. Mm. And, and I think what's important to understand is, you know, these investor-owned utilities, they supply about two-thirds of the electricity in the country, and they serve most of our large urban areas. But we do have other kinds of utilities, too. We have cooperatively owned ones that are owned by members that mostly serve rural areas that these big companies didn't want to serve. And so the federal government stepped in to kind of help this, these companies, these co-ops, launch back in the 1930s. And we also have some uh, publicly owned utilities that are owned by cities, uh, like in Los Angeles or Sacramento, California, in Austin, Texas, or even Rochester, Minnesota. There are about 2,000 of them across the country. And so there are utility ownership models that are different, that don't have that kind of competing incentive to both serve shareholders and to serve customers. And that's, I think, one of the lessons that I, I like to share with folks is just even helping them understand hey, I have this utility and it has its own interests that it might be different from mine. And so what does that mean for its decision making? So yeah, kind of uncovering some of that hidden agenda, I think, is really important in helping people understand why decisions get made the way they they do in our energy system. Hmm. So it sounds like these monopoly utility companies, they may be in support of the transition towards renewable energy, but they may not be in support of decentralization of power grids because that means they may be at risk of losing business. Exactly. So, I mean, all of this, it means that everyday citizens like ourselves stand to gain from energy democracy, whereas the big money of utility monopolies risk losing businesses. But how would decentralizing our power grids impact our local economies and our national economy? And are there incentives for governments to uh, support this decentralization? Yeah. So the process of doing decentralization has unfortunately been... (laughs) Uh, it's a little bit complicated in the face of the market structure that we have now, these big monopolies and the way that we regulate energy companies. So it's 
it's actually really difficult to like launch a new utility company because in a lot of states it's that they are the monopolies. But there are a lot of ways that we can get started. So, you know, ILSR actually has what we call our community power toolkit. That's an interactive feature on our website. It's actually getting a nice overhaul right now. Um, but we try to share stories of what communities have done and what they can do with the power that they have, even if they don't own the utility company. And so that can be anywhere from cities investing in solar on public buildings, which reduces the energy costs for a city, which means that they hopefully have more resources to invest in things like libraries or police officers or firefighters. Cities can help streamline the permitting process for a solar array. So instead of paying $2,000 to install a solar array, the city might say, well, we'll only charge $500 to approve a permit for a solar array. And that, you know, that makes it easier for each individual resident, each citizen of the city, each business owner to invest in solar. So there are lots of these different ways in which cities, communities can use kind of their own powers to help facilitate the development of decentralized energy. And then the economic benefits are really significant. Like I mentioned a a little while ago, there are $360 billion a year we spend on electricity. And lots of that could be redirected into the community. You know, even just a one megawatt solar array, it's about the size of one you'd see on like a Walmart store. It serves about 200 homes. And it generates several million dollars in electricity revenue over its lifetime that can be redirected into the pockets of ordinary residents, ordinary businesses within the community. And what we found in a lot of our research is that the more money there is that people have in the local economy and the more businesses that we help facilitate you know, locally owned businesses, et cetera, that are in the local economy, the more those dollars continue to circulate locally. So the more money I have as a Minneapolis resident, the more I'm likely to spend in Minneapolis and the better the local economy for everyone. So we have this really remarkable opportunity to do that and and cities can play a role and to exercise their authority to make that possible. How much are we currently being held back by the big money in utility companies versus, so for example, if cities do have an incentive to support this decentralization, how much are they being held back by the influence of big money? Well, unfortunately, a fair amount. Um, <laughs> the, you know, I think about in the case of St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, it's a neighboring city to Minneapolis, one of the Twin Cities, they just passed a climate action plan, or they just uh, proposed a climate action plan that looks at how the city will reduce its carbon emissions by to the scientifically needed amount by 2050 and one of the one of the pieces of the climate action plan on electricity essentially is a punt it says hey excel energy has made this promise to be low carbon so there's really not much we need to do about it and i think that's kind of dangerous because it it allow it basically says we are going to continue to give away our agency our our power of choice over our energy system to this company, and it you know it, it misses this opportunity that we're talking about to keep more of those energy dollars local. You know, to focus on, for example, rooftop solar. So you know, one thing that we could do, for example, is that the utility companies, these monopoly companies, are regulated at the state level. Well, we could go when they have to file their resource plans or their other compliance reports with the public regulator, the Public Utilities Commission. We could go there and say, hey, we want this company to invest in providing incentives for rooftop solar, because we think it's important that we transition to having more decentralized energy systems. Or we want them to be required to partner with cities to build out a charging network for electric vehicles, because we see it as a really important way for our residents to be able to switch to a low carbon way of getting around, but also save a bunch of money on fuel, because it's way cheaper to drive 
on electricity as a fuel than it is to drive on gasoline. Or we could do that through the state legislature, where we go there and we lobby for laws that require these companies to make those kinds of investments. And that's where the challenge is, right? So I gave the example of Ohio, where the utility has made a lot of political contributions. It makes it hard to move things Mm -hmm. that would require them to do something that's not in their financial interest. And yet we still can win, because you see in other places like New York or California uh, or Oregon, they're passing laws that are requiring utilities to meet clean energy commitments, to make investments in low-income communities, to make investments in cities. So we still have power, but we're up against this, this big, powerful incumbent. And you know we have to fight to elect the right people. We have to do like folks in Virginia did and ask their legislators to pledge not to take money from utility companies that they are responsible for regulating. Uh, and then we have to push them to adopt policies that give us more of the power. Right. As a non-homeowner myself, I've always just lived in apartments that already had their power sources set. So I honestly never really thought to question where where that energy came from or whether I could have a say in changing the source to something that's more localized and that is from 100% renewable energy. So this conversation definitely gave me a lot to think about. And you touched on this earlier, but I'd love to hear what are some things that either we as homeowners or renters can take action on easily that can have the biggest impact in helping us to realize energy democracy? I think this is a really big and it's a complicated question. So I'd say one thing that's super important is figure out something you can do, anything you can do that is within your own living space that would make a difference, right? So maybe it's just finding LED light bulbs at the hardware store and swapping out a few incandescents or even compact fluorescent bulbs to help lower your own energy bill. Or maybe it's talking to your landlord and saying like, hey, my refrigerator is really old. And I know, or at least I'm sharing with you now, that refrigerators have gotten a lot more efficient over the past 20 years because of uh, government setting new efficiency regulations. And chances are that maybe you pay your utility bill, but your landlord owns the refrigerator. And so maybe you can say, hey, you know what, I'd really, I'd be willing to kick in a few bucks here if you put in a new refrigerator because I know it'll lower my electrical bill. Mm-hmm. Same thing if you're a homeowner, right? Like look around, maybe your re- utility offers a rebate or some other kind of incentive to invest in energy efficiency. And maybe there's an opportunity for you to cut your energy costs, to cut your energy bill in a way that also is helpful for the climate. The second thing though is, is figuring out like who can you talk to about doing something different for your community's energy system. I think talking to a city council member is super important. It doesn't take very many people to give a call or ask for a meeting with a city council person to get them to pay attention. Even in a big city like Minneapolis, we've got 400,000 residents. If 10 people give a city council member a call on the same issue, they're going to they're gonna take notice. And, and saying to them like, hey, you know what, we want, I'd like it to be easier for people to do solar in this, in this community, or we'd like you to provide incentives for low-income folks to do solar, or we want you to work with the utility company to offer low-interest loans to uh, homeowners and to landlords to do investments in energy efficiency. Cities have a lot of power there, and a lot of them actually have some money that comes from the utility company. It's called a franchise fee. I won't go into the weeds about it. (laughs) But a lot of them actually have some money that they get right now from utility bills that they could spend helping people lower their utility bills and to lower their carbon footprint. And to close, I'd love for you to paint a picture of what our world with fully localized, resilient, and renewable energy systems looks like, and what you think we need most collectively to get there. You know, when I think about what the outcome could be, I think of looking, you know, walking through a community in which I see solar panels on like at least one in 10 houses. 
that I would see community centers that have solar on it, that I would see, you know, that on the street, it would be quieter because I'd be listening to the sound of electric vehicles driving by, Mm -hmm. but also like lots more bikes and scooters and other ways to get around. And there would be more space for pedestrians and, and whatnot. And I think that I would also envision it being a, a community in which everybody is really comfortable in their home because everybody has access to the resources to get more wall insulation or invest in an energy efficient air conditioner or 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 heat you know heating system so that their home can be very comfortable and even more affordable to live in. So and I think all of those things, you know, would be ways in which as well that it would lower the pollution in our communities, that we'd have fewer particulate emissions from diesel buses, school buses and and whatever, so that people's health would be better and that we would have fewer not only fewer overall health impacts from our energy system, but that particularly folks who now have to live close to like, you know, a trucking facility or a garbage burner would be spared that because we have closed those facilities and replaced them with clean energy. And they no longer have to suffer those ongoing health impacts, but can, you know, live to the fullest of their potential. And what do you think we need most collectively to get there? If you feel like you have additional thoughts to add? I think what's most important is that we look at how we can collectively wield the power that we have. So not just in terms of the individual actions that we take, but we're always seeking ways to work together. And I think about there are lots of organizations that focus specifically on this issue. I work with a group called Solar United Neighbors, and they're all about helping homeowners go solar together. So like pooling together 20 people to all buy solar at the same time to get a group discount. Mm. But then they also organize those folks and send them out notices and try to organize them to say, hey, this policy conversation is happening at the legislature right now that could impact the opportunity for other people like you to go solar. Can you help us? Can you call your legislator? Can you call your city council member? Can you make sure that we continue to make this as easy as possible for others to do it. And I just think that's the model that we need, that we need to think about what can we do for ourselves that matters? And then what, once we've done that, how can we help other people do the same thing? And if, it just keeps, if we just keep doing that, it's going to pay it forward in a way that allows us to achieve that vision. Hey, I just wanted to thank you sincerely for your huge heart and continued dedication to being the change that you want to see in the world. I know it's not always easy, but the world is a better place today because of you, and I'm truly honored that you're here. If Green Dreamer has become a part of your routine and you're able to support the show starting at just $1 per month, which will also gain you access to extended content, that would be so immensely helpful, and I would so greatly appreciate that. You can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Green Dreamer is also now on YouTube, and I hope to start doing some real-life field interviews soon, so I'm not just sitting here in my closet staring at a screen and I can actually get out there and connect with people in real life. So if you're interested in staying posted on this, you can head to greendreamer.com YouTube to subscribe for free. For now, to our final five, let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I'm actually looking at on the bookshelf right now, Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine uh, has been really transformative for me in understanding, not only realizing that there's importance to kind of understand the hidden agenda of, of businesses, but just understanding like how our capitalist economy works. And I'm a capitalist myself, but also understanding what rules we need to make it work better. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? 
I tell myself that there are hundreds of thousands of people that are out there doing other great things that we are continually making progress and that I can be a part of it. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Not reading my email from work <laughs> when I am not working. Yes, it's so hard, but I'm working on that too. <laughs> what are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for a healthier planet? I guess I could say my job, frankly. I am blessed to have a job that I get to do something that has a positive impact uh, every day that I'm at work and to try to bring a little bit of that home too and share it with my kids. What makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? I am always inspired by folks like in the Sunrise Movement, for example, who are youth that are organizing around issues that they care about and people will tell them, the problem is too big or the incumbent powers are too powerful. And then out of that comes a Green New Deal proposal uh, in Congress from an entity that we've believed wouldn't do anything. And even if Congress still isn't going to do anything, the Green New Deal is inspiring people across the country and across the political spectrum to do stuff. And so I continue to be hopeful that young people won't be told no and will keep going out to say uh, and asking the question until they get a yes. Well, Green Dreamer, if you'd like to stay updated on John's work at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, you can check them out at ILSR.org. And you can also follow John on Twitter at John F. Farrell. That's F-A-R-R-E-L-L. John, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? I think my final word of wisdom, we don't forget to have fun, that this work uh, can seem really challenging and really difficult. And yet there are ways, I think, to, you know, take joy in working on it with other people and to have a few laughs every once in a while. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can subscribe to Green Dreamer on YouTube now at greendreamer.com slash YouTube. Become a patron and access extended content by going to greendreamer.com slash support and subscribe to our weekly solutions driven newsletter at greendreamer.com. As we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.